This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hello, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford, joined by my co-host, Mark Sinell. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Carolyn, and uh, happy February 1st. Thank you very much. I can't believe it's February already. Today, we talked to Willie Hicks, Dynatrace Public Sector CTO, to unpack some of the biggest headlines of late from the Executive Order on Transforming Federal Customer Experience and Service Delivery to Log4j. I know, Willie, this is one of your, like, you're so sick of this topic, but we're we're going to cover it anyway today. Yeah. Um, and then Zero Trust Thunderdome Award. So, Willie, welcome back to Tech Transforms. Glad to be here. Hope everybody's doing well. Same doing to well. you. Glad how to how you, are you? Well. Yeah. Oh, not bad. Thank you. Well, great. Well, let's just jump in. So I want to go first to the executive order requiring improving the digital government experience. Willie, will you give us the big takeaways from this executive order, what it means for our agencies? Well, uh, yeah. Uh, First of all, I think that the executive order kind of on transforming, I think it's transforming federal customer experience. It is going to impact the agencies, but I think uh, also, you know, it's going to impact the citizen, the, the digital citizen of the day, the the real customers of the federal government. And, you know, as I think by President Biden said, uh, you know, kind of reiterating, this is supposed to be a government, you know, for the people, by the people. And so we're, we're trying to put people back into the equation. Um, and I think kind of the big takeaway for me is that, you know, the federal government is coming back into or, or getting, you know, getting to a point where they're really understanding that customer experience if they, well, they already understood it, but really starting to internalize and figure out how to make customer experience like the customer experience most citizens expect to see with, you know, anybody who shops on Amazon, anyone who, you know, does a Google search, they they expect, you know, with the push of a button, you know, they, they got, uh, you know, all the groceries shipped to them the next day or the same day, you know, that kind of experience you do not get with the federal government today. And I think that we're going to see we're seeing a fundamental shift now that not just that kind of digital experience, but I think across the board, like when you even walk into a brick or mortar building, when you interface on the phone with a a government employee, you know, I think we're going to start hopefully seeing more customer focused, customer centric type attitudes. And uh, this is this is really long overdue. I've been in this business for many, many years, and I remember when one of my early visits to a federal agency that I will remain nameless, but um, I was speaking to this agency about uh, what we call our digital user experience, what we call digital user experience, how um, how we need to focus on the real metric who's the end user. You know, right now you're kind of focused on the back end. You're focused on is the server up or down? You know, do I have, you know, is this process running? Do I have availability for this device? But no one's actually really looking at the end user. So how do you know, are they getting a good experience? You know, 
not only are the systems running, but are they running efficiently? Are they getting, you know, transactions back um, in a timely manner? Are they frustrated? And I remember one uh, engineer saying, well, you know, why does that matter? And I'm like, it, it does matter because they're your number one responsibility. You know, what, that's who pays you. That's who pays your salary. And this person, engineer, actually said to me that, well, it's not, this is, you know, there's not another X agency. It's not like they're going to mm. go somewhere else. This is not, this isn't Amazon. This isn't, you know, an, another commercial entity. If it doesn't work, they'll come back later. Mm-hmm. And that was the response. And I was like, wow. Yeah. That you is- know, it, it makes me think of when, when my dad died a few years ago, he, we, we wanted to give him a full military burial, but we couldn't find the papers that we needed. Mm-hmm. He had sh- he had shown me where everything was mm-hmm. except these particular papers that yeah. we had to have to get him this burial. We spent hours and hours and hours online trying to track them down. We never did. We we mm-hmm. never were able to find them. Ultimately, it came down to us calling uh, Camp Williams and saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, Colonel Ford is gone, and we need some help." Mm-hmm. And they and they stepped up and they did it, and it was awesome. And now fast forward to today, I'm in Utah and we've got billboards all over saying something about findmycash.gov. And I was like, all right, I'll bite. I want to see how easy this is. You guys, it was so slick. In Mm -hmm. 10 minutes, I put in my name. I think I put in my address and like there was a quick database search and it said, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, you've got money here, here, and here from these closed old accounts. We'll send you a check. A -hmm. week later, I got a check. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still blown away that I did mm-hmm. a government transaction and it happened that smoothly. Right. And, and that, unfortunately, that's the that's been the exception, kind of not the rule, uh, except for certain agencies like, uh, you know, certain agencies that I work with, you know, um, like I work closely with organizations like the VA. And mm-hmm. to your point, the VA has been making great strides, a lot of strides to improve their customer service, their their image, and so forth. And a lot of that is around, I think, customer experience, or I should say the, the veteran experience and making sure that, you know, they're putting veterans first and they're they're putting a lot of investment there to understand not just how their back-end systems are working, but how, you know, how the actual end users performing, how quickly that transaction took. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and- but to your engineer's point, why now? I mean, he's right. We have to have these services. We're just going to come back later or we're going to give up. Right. Well, that I, I would say right now, why now is because to be quite frank, that's the wrong attitude. Because at the end of the day, he's he, that, that person was right. It's not like I can fire the, you know, this agency and, and say, I'm going to go and take my business elsewhere. But there are ways we can speak at the voting booth, you know, mm-hmm. um, calling our, our, our senators, our, our representatives, getting those type of attitudes, you know, changed by having them hauled in front of Congress to ask, why are you treating my constituents that way? You know, we pay your salaries. We expect the same kind of, you know, response that they would get from any other service. And, um, and I think that's what we're seeing with the administration today is that the kind of focus on, you know, we, we need to bring the people back into the equation, like I was saying, and that they, that the citizenry understands that 
they are our most important priority. And we, we treat you that way in everything you do. You know, mm-hmm. if it's going to at the state level, going to the DMV, which I think everyone dreads, <laughs> but, you know, hopefully this will translate down to the states. But, you know, going to the Social Security office to to you know get a, a new Social Security card or going to, you know, in the worst case scenarios, I think this is even going to translate into, you know, disasters. How quickly do I get mm-hmm. disaster relief? How quickly do I get, you know, um, relief because I just lost everything that, you know, from a flood? How quickly do, you know, when there is a major catastrophe, you know, how do I get to the right organization to help me? Just making sure I have the right avenues. Those, you know, we I, I've seen reports lately where agencies due to COVID, they, they were slow to respond. They were slow to get, you know, mm-hmm. PPE out and things like that. And those things... That is customer service, but mm-hmm. there, there, it, there are consequences also to bad customer service. People don't get the services they need and they get sicker because they don't have well, this, math. They don't do This is a confidence in, in government issue, 100%. really. And, and I mean, I hope that this executive order has the staying power. Um, it's that, that generates money to put behind it because, I mean, really, it's a nonpartisan political issue that impacts mm-hmm. all citizens. However, I think it's it's being leveraged a little bit politically because I do I do feel like, you know, in order to if you're going if you're going to if, if, if whatever administration is going to implement services and things like that, that that they're putting out there for citizens to take advantage of, you know, you have to have confidence. The citizen has to have confidence that the, the government can actually deliver. Right. And if you can't if you can't even access the application of the information online, then you you lose confidence that the government knows what they're doing. So So before um, we leave this topic, are there any teeth to this executive order? Are there deadlines? I mean, what happened? Like, what is it other than saying, yeah, we need to do better? Yeah. So, so, you know, that, that is always the, the issue is that do we have how is this going to be implemented? How is this going to be upheld? Because unfortunately, it is an EO. It's an executive order. It's not codified in law. It's not like there was a bill passed on customer service. Although there are there are ancillary bills that do cover some of these topics, but I think nothing that's more all-encompassing as, as what we're seeing in the EO. So I think that does it have teeth? We'll see. Because mm-hmm. I, I think right now I don't see I don't know of any like hard deadlines that are imposed that, you know, because I, I think they're they're really putting a framework in place to to, mm-hmm. to do all of these things. And I'm sure the administration wants to, to be able to report by, you know, the end of the term to, to make sure, you know, that they are seeing progress. I think what my hope in all of this is, is that in this period of time that. Even without the teeth. My hope is agencies will be forced to think about these things. Yeah, will be forced to internalize some of these things, and then moving forward, regardless of administration, these kind of things, these these ideals are self propagated throughout the agencies and and kind of continue on, regardless of of the law, regardless of what's in place. Because at the end of the day, there's certain things that should be done just because they're the right thing, not because it's a law, not yeah. because someone has to tell you to do it. And we've start we've started the conversation, which mm-hmm. is a, a really really good thing. So, all right, let's go to log four J. Just school me. What is it? So, uh, I mean, I won't I won't bore kind of everyone with the details, but uh, I think because everyone's 
you know, really probably heard a lot about this, but you've you've heard of Log4J, Log4Shell, in a nutshell, extremely critical, extremely severe vulnerability um, in a component, a module of what's called Apache. It's uh, it's a, uh, a kind of a server technology that mm-hmm. um, is utilized. That everybody has. That a lot of people have. <laughs> A lot of, uh, in the probably, I've seen millions, maybe billions of instances of of, of this, you know, you know, module that is distributed across multiple platforms. It could be in embedded devices. It might be, you know, in servers. Honestly, the scope and scale of it is is kind of unprecedented. And so that's why there was this full court press. Wait, wait, wait. Unprecedented beyond solar winds? Unprecedented? I would say even so. So I think that I, I I won't mix the two per se because with Solar Winds, what we do have with Solar Winds is that we've got documented attacks. We mm-hmm. know that our adversaries had you know taken advantage of this. They were lying in wait in some of these systems for months. They were slowly making moves, lateral movements, and so forth when they got into the system. Um, with Log4J. It's, I think it's still early to find out the true impact of it. But at the end of the day, I think from a scale standpoint, yes, because Solar Winds was is a, a commercial kind of product that agencies kind of trusted and they brought it in-house and they let it kind of behind the gates. And unfortunately, supply chain issues were there, which allowed for some malicious code to be kind of in, in that in that product that was kind of like a Trojan horse almost. It, it was brought behind the gates and then they were able to take advantage of that. Um, Log4j, on the other hand, this was this is just was a vulnerability in the code, but that was propagated over not just a few hundred customers or thousand customers, whatever. I don't know the, I don't know solar winds as customer base, but whatever that that customer base was versus something that was just distributed across millions of devices. So so really. Different scale, different. Who did it? Who did what? The the log for J. Well, it's a vulnerability. It wasn't like a supply chain issue. It wasn't like, you know, someone planted, as far as we know, there wasn't like somebody planted this. It was just a something that had been there for a while. It was just a, a security vulnerability, something mm-hmm. that wasn't accounted for. But once it was discovered, it was figured out you could use this, you could exploit this to take over a machine. So basically to get code execution, remote code execution capability. So you could run remote. And that was open source, wasn't it, Willie? Yeah, yeah. So so that's, uh, you know, there. there's a whole nother conversation we can have. I won't get into that about open source and and so forth. That, although open source has its, its merits and its benefits um, because a lot of eyes are on it. But also sometimes, you know, these things still happen. And it depends also on the open source. Some Some open source projects are very well maintained very well scrutinized. People are always, you know, looking at it, tinkering with it, understanding when they find a vulnerability like Law4J, they're, they're quickly um, bubble that up. And then there are some um, open source projects that aren't so well maintained, but people still use them, but they, you know, the vulnerabilities don't come out as quickly. So we're a month into this. What have we got it under control? Do we have our arms around it? What did agencies do to manage this? Well, I would say, well, that's a, that's kind of a loaded question. If, um, <laughs> do we have our arms around it? I would say we 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 are. Well, let's just talk about what did happen 
And, um, you know, because I can even speak from a company, from, a, you know, my, my perspective on, you know, what, what our company has done around this. But, you know, immediately, pretty immediately after at least it became public, I think it was December 9th, uh, I think it was December 9th that this was released or it, it became known, mm-hmm. um, you know, this was escalated to the highest levels. I mean, CISA made this a, a, a highest level vulnerability. They instructed agencies immediately to start, you know, immediate searches of their systems. I mean, I know, I personally know of agencies we worked with where they might have had a team of like 100 people plus over weekends going through servers looking for, unfortunately, sometimes looking manually for, you know, this, this, a vulnerable, a vulnerable code, um, then going to remediate it. Uh, so we quickly got our hands around it in that standpoint. Is there still Log4J out there that we haven't caught? Of course. I mean, I know we haven't gotten every, eradicated every, you know, um, bit of vulnerable code, but there was a very concerted effort, especially at the federal government level. And I know at the commercial, at the corporate level, at the, the, in the private sector, there was a, a equally frantic, I would say, push to get this taken care of because it, it is a major vulnerability. I mean, you don't want someone with the ability to remotely execute code on your servers. I mean, they, they could do anything they want at that point then once they get into the system. So, but I would say that time will tell, you know, how well we got our hands wrapped around it. I mean, from our standpoint, we were able to quickly analyze our code to look to quickly find out where our vulnerabilities were to quickly notify our customers and our government partners and agencies of what our vulnerabilities were and also how to how we were remediating them quickly. So we had patches out like I think the next day to make sure our systems were patched. I think SAS, our SAS environment was doing like that day. We, you know, we quickly accelerated our testing cycles to make sure that we we didn't break anything, blow blow up anything when we we applied the patches. But we quickly we were got also those things helping we are also helping our customers with their application security module as well. Right. Identify yeah. those vulnerabilities. Yeah. Right. So, so you know, that was kind of the internal, but from an external standpoint, as Mark accurately pointed out, where I was saying earlier that some of our customers were um, manually kind of looking for this, we were, luckily we had in place for our, our customers that have agents kind of deployed and had observability by Dynatrace. Um, we actually had a capability that is is core to our, our platform called AppSec. And it is designed just for this, to look for vulnerability. So within like, I think 10 minutes of the announcement, our databases were updated with this vulnerability signature and wow. pushed out to all of our customers that were kind of connected online. And then for those customers that received that, they immediately, who are using the AppSec module, they immediately started getting flags all over the place of where this module was. So those people who had AppSec and had um, our agents fully deployed, you know, they didn't have hundreds of people. They were going to their Dynatrace consoles. They were seeing all of the, the vulnerable systems. And then we actually had remediation steps kind of built into the platform where they could see what they needed to do to remediate that. And so, you know, we were able to take that from, you know, kind of, you know, multitude of people down to, you know, the team that was monitoring the system and then distribute that information to 
the admin teams or to the to the automation team so they could you know use ansible or whatever they were using to automate the remediation of that so it really powerful when you have when you have that visibility into the system when you have that observability into the system it, it there was no better example of how important it is for any type of DevSecOps type organization, you know, we can talk about it from a zero trust standpoint. I can even talk about it from, you know, you know, just understanding the build of your systems. Like we, we there's all this talk about now um, bringing legislation around companies having software build materials, SBOMs built in, you know, you know, as part of their product. So you can see exactly what's what components are in software, which is something we don't normally do um, in mm-hmm. the industry. But, you know, having that observability, so you maybe not, you might not have that SBOM, but we can light up and say, this is how that application is built and all the components, really invaluable. Nice. All right, let's go to our last topic, the last big boulder news item, which is the Zero Trust Thunderdome contract. I'm going to be honest, when I read this, 7 million contract developed to develop zero trust architecture. Honestly, I thought this was already happening. So what is the significance of Thunderdome? <laughs> well, so, so, and, and I, I will preface this by saying I'm, you know, I, I'm not a, a security expert, but I, I can tell, I could talk to it from my industry perspective, but, um, you know, the, the, the Thunderdome award, which I, I like the name by the way, but the Thunderdome award, is um, that $7 million, it, it is it is just a prototype. You know, it, it's just a prototype to to prove out the, the schemes, the technologies that they're going to be using um, that DISA wants to use to build out their zero trust, you know, architectures or to, let's say, validate the zero trust architectures that they've been developing. Um, to your point, there are pockets of the DOD, there are pockets of um, the service branches that have been uh, already investing in zero trust. So you look at um, programs like uh, Platform One, right. where um, you know this is already you know this is already being built into the platform. So uh, which was was part of what was really I think revolutionary about kind of the Platform One environment and what they were trying to do, what they're trying to do at Platform One. This was already being built in in DISA, and and the DoD had already been investigating this for for I'm sure several years but I think what happened with log4j solar winds all the ransomware attacks the administration basically has put a stake in the ground they basically have now said that you know the studies are great you know we can you know we need to do more investigation but we need some to, to your point teeth behind this deadlines you know I need mm. in 30 days, you know, a full assessment of X. I need in 60 days. So so there are deadlines. This that contract are, has deadlines just for the prototype or does it extend out to the agencies? So the prototype is only six months. And so mm-hmm. it does have a, an, an end to it. It does have a, a life. And in that six months, there are deliverables that, that should be delivered. Um, and what will happen is, is that this, I think, is going to, again, like I said, I, I, I have, um, I think, I, I, the mandate from the the executive was like 27 pages and I've started reading through it, but, you know, and looking at, you know, the architectures from what the DOD is putting together, what my, my understanding is, is that um, this will validate a lot of those technologies. This is going to validate a lot of the, the methodology. So they're going to be looking at a lot of different um, 
combining a lot of different technologies like, uh, you know, software defined WAN, SASE type of deployments, things that are going to um, really help build out kind of this zero trust framework. Now, my understanding is it's not going to be this prototype is not going to then just be pushed out and say, all oh, the service branches have to do this. But it's going to mm-hmm. be kind of a guide map to help all the service branches uh, build this okay. out. Yeah, okay. so that's my that's my understanding, and I think is I think is important. You know, I, I can't speak to this point because I, I've worked in this space long enough, and um, you know, I, I've got uh, members of my team who are really more security focused, and we talk about this that you know this is a quantum shift. This is a, a big shift for the the federal government in general and for the DOD. Thunderdome is Thunderdome and, and zero trust in, in, in general okay. um, yeah. because you know we're we're moving away from. Um, the, the perimeter based approach mm-hmm. where trust, you know but verify uh, yeah, yeah kind of thing and once you're in you're in kind of yeah. thing you're good um which uh has obviously not worked for us <laughs> uh just to say the least to a a more verify first and then we'll trust you somewhat and keep but, on ve- verifying. but we're going to verify you some more and <laughs> yeah. we're going to verify you some more so basically now every device every person data everything is going to be you know we we're, we're taking a posture which I think is an important posture in my, my my opinion, maybe a little paranoid, but in these days we we need to be paranoid that, you know, let's assume everything's compromised. All right. Let's assume yep. whatever is out there is compromised. And then we're going to verify you. We're going to validate it, and then we're going to trust you. And then and continuously you back, verify you. And, yeah. And when you come back in, we're going to verify you again. Yep, yep. And it's not going to be this one time and forget it. I think you're going to we're going to see changes across the board, even across like we got to get we got to stop these ransomware attacks, these phishing attacks. So I think there's going to be, you know, what I've read, like more MFA multi-factor involved in um, system authentication. You know, there's going to be um, so so you can't just have a, a password and think you're going to get in. You've got to have another source of authentication. So we're just making it harder for our adversaries to to get past the gates and or if they're already in the system to stop them, you know, from going further. So this is a good news roundup. So (laughs) thanks, Willie, for the roundup of the news. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. Please smash that like button and share this episode. We will talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. 